going to um, introduce our speaker tonight. Um, his name is Mike Quayle, and we didn't get to say a lot um, in our flyers that we gave out, but Mike is going to tell his story. He won't say this, but yes, he's dined with presidents. He's been at the White House. He's been a part of Betty Ford, has known Stevie Nicks, knew the great late Robin Williams, Stephen Tyler, all of those, but he's also overcome alcoholism. Can we give a big hand clap for that? And um, he'll tell his story. Um, but he's actually married to uh, my uh, maid of honor and my forever best friend and have known him for several years. What I love the most about Mike is not everyone that he's known, but his heart for the hurting is so rich and his humility. And I told him just to talk straight. Is that okay? He's going to share his story and tell you what he wants to say. When he's done, he's going to give time for Q&A. So that's your time. Keep your questions, you know, simple and stated. And he will answer them. Would you please give a welcome for Mr. Mike Quayle? Come on. Well, thank you, Pastor Rhonda. It is uh, certainly um, a pleasure to be back here. I think, what was it, uh, two or three years ago, I spoke to this group and. Uh, I'm very humbled when I come come back here. Um, uh, there's a there's a calm in this room that uh, I I come out of the uh, AA side of recovery, and uh, things are never this calm. And I can tell you why, because the Lord's not openly praised there, at least the Lord of our understanding. And uh, so I I'm uh, it's a blessing to be here, and I appreciate the invitation to come back and. Uh, uh, I ask Rhonda, and I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but just so I know uh, who to pray for, how many are, are in recovery for an addiction? Oh, great. Okay. Thank, thank you. Um, in August, I celebrated 14 years of recovery. And uh, that's the longest I've ever had by the way. But uh, tonight, it'll be 5,142 5, days. And, uh, you know, it's kind of trite you hear it's one day at a time. Well, folks, it is one day at a time. And, you know, and I, I heard of a DWI. I've been there. Um, I, I know what that's all about. And it's, uh, it's, it's not a whole lot of fun. Um, but there is, there is hope. Uh, we have a very gracious and forgiving Lord who is really ready to have you come back to Him uh, as He knows who you are. And uh, uh, He knows these earthly things happen, but the, but the Lord's waiting for you. And um, I would like to uh, tell you of, of my experience, the strength that I've had, and the hope that I can uh, offer you and I offer anybody who is in the grips of a, of, a, of a demon addiction, and that's exactly what it is, is a demon addiction, and uh, uh, the Lord can help you through that. Um, I wished I'd have known that a long, long time ago, but um, to be honest, uh, my first 24 hours sober, that was always pretty easy. I found it very easy not to have to have a drink for 24 hours, and uh, and I did that a lot over, over my recovery. The chip that I'm most proud of and the length of time that I'm most proud of that I ever took was my 30-day chip. And 30 days 
You know, it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're in the grips of an addiction and you have to have whatever it is that you need, 30 days is a big deal, folks. And, uh, and that, that was my hallmark. And I got to that um, late in uh, 2004, I guess it is now. And, uh, but where I came from, um, we all know that addiction is a disease. It's a disease of the brain. There's a lot of people out there that'll try to argue that point with you, but the medical science has figured this out. And it's a disease that is based in shame. And 100% of those who have an addiction, I don't care what kind of an addiction it is, smoking, uh, drugs, sex, work, whatever, uh, there, there's some shame involved there. And what are we trying to do with that addiction? We're trying to stuff everything down so we don't have to think about that, about the, the feelings and the emotions that go on with that. Well, I came out, uh, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a twin. Uh, my twin sister and I were adopted uh, as infants. We were nine months old, adopted by a wonderful family. Uh, I've got two older brothers. Uh, one of the older brothers is better known than the other. Um, but we were, we were adopted by this wonderful family and uh, started life in Arizona and moved to Indiana, Indiana when I was a youngster. And um, my problems started um, all out of some jokes that my father and brothers would tell me. Uh, and I was very young, three, four, five years old. Um, because we were adopted, my parents adopted my sister, a little blonde-headed, beautiful little baby. But since she had a twin, the state was not going to break us up. So the little boy came along with the little girl. Well, what did my brothers tell me? Uh, that you weren't wanted. And this was a joke to them, and even my father said that to me. So imagine yourself as a little boy and finding out, first of all, that you're adopted, second of all, that you weren't wanted. Uh, so that was, um, that was a problem. And uh, I will tell you how that manifested here in a little bit. But uh, as I grew up, I grew up in this great family. Uh, my father was a newspaper publisher. My mother was a, was a homemaker. And my father being a newspaper publisher, they entertained in our home a lot. Well, my parents also were social drinkers. And I would go on to say that my father drank alcoholically, but uh, my mother would never agree with me with that. Um, but they drank with friends and neighbors every week. And uh, I started thinking, wow, these people are having a great time. I think I know what's, what's causing it. It's whatever they're drinking. So at our house, when the adults would go into the dining room to have dinner, uh, I would go around and clean up everything in the glasses that was left behind. So at six and seven, I was drinking pretty straight alcohol. Tasted horrible, but I sure had a lot of fun. And wandering around the house and even throwing up, and my parents were in having dinner. But I thought I, I couldn't understand why this was such a big a part of their life, but it sure made me feel good too. So I, I did this. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, 
but it also made me forget about a lot of the problems I had. You see, being my twin sister's brother, um, even at that age, she was cute, she was popular, and I was the dorky little brother that always was around with her. And I was going to ask Pastor Rhonda to, Rhonda to introduce me tonight to that uh, uh, to that song called "Cool Kids" because that is the anthem of my entire life. I always wanted to be like the cool kids, and y'all know the song I'm talking about. Okay, and if you listen to the words of that song, it's it's very hard to hear, especially for me. Uh, but I I wanted to always be cool, and I always wanted to be somebody else, and that was, uh, there was my basis for um, wanting to, to become somebody else. Becoming somebody else through alcohol was the way that I did it, and um, I started drinking alcoholically probably when I was 12 with a friend of mine in the summers at my grandmother's house. We would sneak into his father's liquor cabinet and drink something called a screwdriver. I didn't know what that was, but it tasted good, and, and I was cool for, for the time being. I uh, never got caught. So I thought, okay, well, there's, there's no downside to this. And so growing up, uh, my parents took uh, my sister and I on a European trip and lo and behold, I was 14 years old, learned how to drink wine like, like the Europeans with my parents' permission. But I didn't stop at one glass of sangria. I started stealing bottles of wine from the hotel, taking them to my room where my sister was and drinking them with her. So it was just part of who I was becoming. And things all started to come together when I went went away to school. Um, I was a horrible student. Uh, I was not, a, not very good with, with any subject. Uh, in third grade, um, uh, the basis of my shame started. And I, my wife is sitting over here and hates to hear this story. But I was with a bunch of the other kids in our class. We were on restroom break. We went down to the restroom. I was dared to pee all over the bathroom. And I did, because the, the cool guys in the class dared me to do it. Well, uh, they also told on me when, we, when they got back to class. And that, this is, was probably some of the worst shame in my life. I was called up in front of the entire class. I did not lie about it. I was asked. I said, yes, I did it. The teacher pulled down my pants in front of the entire class and spanked me. Uh, and my sister was threatened not to tell because, of course, being a twin, my sister was, was in the class. This was before consolidation of schools, so this is a small country school in Indiana. Uh, I was mortified. I, I felt like I didn't even feel, um, I didn't even feel worthy to be the mud on the bottom of my shoe. That's how bad it was, and uh, that that literally affected my life, and once again, I'll get to that point uh, shortly. So, from that time on, I wanted to be like every. I wanted to be like the cool kids. So the cool kids back in the '70s were drinking and drugging. So I went away to a military school because uh, I was uh, in this small town. I was already known as a little dork or a geek or whatever. 
So I wanted to move from that and move on to someplace else where nobody knew me. I could start all over. Uh, but it didn't take long there because uh, I was little. I was kind of scrawny. I was not very bright. I just wanted to be like somebody else. And so my roommate, when I was a 10th grader, got me into smoking marijuana. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool stuff here. And he was from Venezuela, a global kid. And uh, unfortunately, he is not even alive today. He was killed in a... In a uh, uh, liquor store hold up in Southern California. But uh, uh, so I started smoking pot and then the, I would go home. Uh, there was plenty of liquor around my parents' house. So I'd never had to feel anything from then on out. I could, I could uh, do whatever I wanted, be, be anybody I wanted. Um, never got in any trouble. I was a great liar. Anybody with addictions growing up, anybody else a good liar? I could lie about anything right to your face, and, and you would not even know I was lying to you. I got out of so much stuff, uh, but what comes after a lie? You feel guilty, and what do you do to cover the guilt? You keep on medicating. And so I kept on doing this. I graduated from high school, and then it was time to go away to college. Oh, one more chance to be somebody else. So I went away to a college in Michigan in 1974. Why did I go to Michigan in 1974? There was an 18-year-old drinking age. You could buy anything in a bar or a liquor store if you were 18 years old. I went away. My dad said, great. I went to the college that he wanted me to go to. It just happened to be that uh, uh, it was now a, a big party school. And... Um, so the first fall there, I was trying to find my new friends, who I was going to be cool with. I went to a fraternity. I went to a bunch of fraternity parties. There were guys with coat and ties on. There were uh, the jocks. There were the mega jocks. There was the, the, the guys that were real smart. And then there was my fraternity. Anybody ever see Animal House? That was my fraternity. The first night I showed up there, they had a chugging contest of which I won. And I won it several times that night, and I ended up passed out in the alley behind the fraternity house. But, folks, I found the people that loved me. And I found my home, and I stayed there for uh, the next three years partying, and I got good enough grades to get along, but... Not only was I drinking, but I was uh, learning how to, to find a lot of great drugs. Crystal meth wasn't around yet, but meth was, and it was pure, and it wasn't cut with the stuff that they do today. So we didn't have the problems uh, that, uh, that addicts have today. Uh, PCP was pure, and, and these are the things that I did. I did everything in college that I could, from LSD to PCP to, I mean, we even tried stuff that, uh, uh, prescription drugs that really weren't even popular yet. And uh, uh, to tell you the truth, I don't remember a whole lot of my, my college years. I dated a few women, and, and as soon as I did something stupid, like go out and get a DWI, you know, it was uh, move on to the next one. Uh, but I was changing. Uh, my hair was down to my elbows. I, I looked like John Lennon. 
I, I wore denim everywhere, and I said far out a lot. And, um, but everybody liked me in that fraternity, so much so I became the president of that fraternity. Um, but by the time I was a senior in college, um, I was having to borrow money, I was having to try to make money to keep this, this alcohol and drug habit going that, that I had. And uh, uh, by the end of my, the first semester of my senior year, um, uh, my grade, I slept through every class, my grades, I had a 0, .0. Uh my parents were unhappy, and one more time I ran away. I quit school. I moved out to Arizona. My, my mom and dad had just bought a little house out there and a newspaper out there, so I wanted to go to work under the great story is I'm tired of school, I want to get to work, and I want to uh, do something with my life. So I started working for my father, and actually I stopped drinking there for a long time. I thought, okay, well, this, is, this is all right. No one knows me out here. I, I haven't really met a whole lot of people that drink. And, uh, but it didn't take long for me to find those who did. And um, uh, I was starting to make a mess of things because I got a DWI Christmas time in 1977 when my parents were there. And I had to tell my father, because I was living in his home, and he was out there for the holidays, had to tell him about this. And uh, so he wasn't going to be accused of playing games in his newspaper, so he put my picture and the story of my arrest right on the front page. Uh, so once again, I ran away. I, I ran to Phoenix, did something that I always wanted to do, and I became an, an EMT and drove ambulances for a couple years and found another great set of beer drinkers. And this was my life. And you may be asking yourself, well, where is God in all this? Well, folks, I grew up as an Episcopalian. We went to church every Sunday. But from the time I started high school to the time I finished college and even beyond that, I didn't go to church. I didn't have a relationship with the Lord. Um, I had more of a relationship with the, with the enemy. And the enemy was leading me down, down streets that I probably shouldn't have been going down. And, uh, but I, I wasn't aware of this. I... Um, I was losing myself once again, but I became a paramedic. And becoming a paramedic and a firefighter, uh, my drinking and drugging kind of slowly subsided, especially the drugs. But nobody was testing for drugs or, or alcohol or anything back then. So 24 hours on, 48 off. Those 48 off are some of the best parties I've ever, I've ever had. But after that, I... Uh, found uh, a great woman uh, with two young young children, fell in love, married her, and adopted her two sons, and then a year later had, my, had a daughter. And so this is now the early 80s, and I was on top of the world. Uh, I was drinking social, socially. You know, we'd have pool parties. You know, I'd have two or three beers, throw the kids around. We had a lot of fun. And so I didn't really pay too much attention to the consumption of, of alcohol. My drug use started to go down because I was now, uh, other people's lives were depending upon me. And I thought, you know, I really shouldn't be 
doing that, although there was more than one instance that I uh, would, would snort cocaine before an ambulance shift and have all sorts of fun with the blue lights in the back and, you know, looking around and, oh, there's a patient here. Who are you? You know, and, and I, uh, those were probably things that I shouldn't have done, and, and those are some of, the, some of the regrets that I've carried through my life. But um, uh, I also, at that, that time, I, I ended up in some uh, fire situations, some paramedic situations. I was exposed to HIV in the 80s. Uh, and back in the 80s, nobody knew what HIV was. Uh, as soon as I was exposed to that, I, w I went on a fire. The house collapsed on us, and, and uh, I really thought that those were the last moments of my life. And, um, but I was pulled out of there, and I don't know why. Uh, I do now. But I didn't back then. I don't know why I was spared. Uh, I should not have lived through that, that fire. Um, but I retired early from the, uh, from the fire department in Phoenix and uh, went on to a little bit safer job, and that was running my dad's newspaper uh, out there. It was a small weekly newspaper. But the pressure now was on me to perform. Uh, I was the youngest child. I was expected to be the world's greatest newspaper manager. And um, so, but they only lived out there in the wintertime, so I had the whole summertime to party and, and to have a great time. One more time, I was, uh, uh, I was put into this situation. Now I had a wife and children. Uh, we were not making any money. I was taking home about $125 a month. And um, but I now needed alcohol again. I was, I was letting my wife and children down. I was letting my family down. And so I started drinking real heavy. I mean, I met a, my friend from the bowling alley who owned a bar. And I was spending every day in there and every night in there with him. And literally just drinking myself silly. And I might go in there and, and drink a case of beer and maneuver my way home and told my wife I was just working at the newspaper. And I would have weekly trips to Phoenix from our little town to pick up supplies for the newspaper and what have you. Uh, went down there one night and sat in a bar and met a gentleman, gentleman by the name of Tyrone, a uh, nice black gentleman who was as drunk as I was. And I said, here are the keys to my car. Let's, let's go on an adventure. Uh, Seven o'clock the next morning, I found myself in a flea bag motel on Van Buren Street. Had no idea how I got there. Uh, fortunately, I was alone, he, and he was gone with my van. And uh, I called my wife, and uh, she had one of our friends come and get me, and drove, uh, my brother-in-law drove me home. And this was the first time I had to confront my addiction and my wife was so upset she said you either get yourself straight or I'm taking the children and I'm leaving and you'll never see us again so if you don't get help this is it so of course I was I was gonna go ahead and get help and um, uh, and take care of things well I was drinking uh, a case to two cases of beer a day and uh, which 
when I look back at things, probably wasn't really all that much. Um, but I went to St. Luke's Hospital in uh, 1986 in uh, December. This is right after Christmas. And was there for 30 days, got sober, or at least I stopped drinking. I left there, life was okay. Um, but once again, I was, I was not sober. I was not practicing anything that had been taught to me in the 12 steps. I was, I was just making, um, making, every, making it look good for everybody I knew. And as far as everybody knew, I was sober, but I was still lying to myself. I was still cheating myself. I was still not the person that I knew I was supposed to be. I, I stayed this way for 10 years. I did not drink for 10 years. And... Uh, my life was, was getting worse, and it got real bad uh, in 1994 when, when my wife Cindy was diagnosed with leukemia. I knew in my heart from my medical training uh, that she was not going to live. Uh, we went to hospitals all over this country and trying to find treatments for her type of leukemia, and most of everything was experimental. Three nights uh, before uh, she died in 1997, I started drinking again. I had nowhere else to go but back to the bottle. And have you ever heard that when you stop drinking, the disease never stops? So when you start up again, it takes that much more to get you high than it did before. So I started back literally on lethal doses of, of alcohol after, after we had her buried and and I moved on and trying to put on a brave face for my children, trying to put on a brave face for my family and my staff. I was now a newspaper publisher in southern Indiana. Uh, but I was spending um, every night drinking, and I was drinking a lot. Uh, I did this, and this, this was the worst relapse I could ever imagine. Um, I was probably had a blood alcohol of 0.35 and driving a car to and from Indianapolis two hours away on business. You know, what business did I have being in a car? Um, so this went on and on and on and um, my uh, consumption of alcohol kept going up. Uh, I had great friends. Boy, we would party. We would go places, golf trips to Myrtle Beach. I was making lots of money as a newspaper publisher. I was buying and selling newspapers on my own across the country. I'd buy them for pennies on the dollar and then flip them a year, year and a half later for lots of money. Um, but I'd go into restaurants and, and buy everybody dinner. I'd buy rounds of drinks for the entire restaurant. I'd walk out of some restaurants with an eight or nine or $10,000 bill. Everybody loved me. I mean, every, I mean, I was everybody's best friend. I was right back to that place that I wanted to be because I wanted to be one of the cool kids. And uh, this all was great until um, my, my health started to deteriorate. Um, I went to uh, the doctor. I've had high blood pressure since I was 18. And uh, most of it probably because I was a smoker and a, and a big drinker. And um, uh, 
But the doctor had the audacity to write on my chart, diagnosis, acute alcohol, acute, uh, acute, acute, basically acute alcohol consumption, and my liver enzymes were just off the scale. Well, how, how, he, how dare he do this? He doesn't know me. So what did I do? I read this in the car, and I went right back inside and looked for this guy. And I hadn't had a drink since the night before. I wonder why my liver was so bad. But I went back into his office in this big medical complex, and I am livid. And I am charging my way down, always yelling for him. You quack, where are you? And, and I finally confronted him, said, how, how could you put uh, acute liver failure or whatever he had written on, on, my, uh, on my chart? And they threatened to call the police. And I said, okay, I better get out of here. Um, I told my, uh, I, and in the meantime, I had been remarried after my wife died to another alcoholic and another drug addict. And, um, and she was also mentally ill. None of that works out, let me tell you. Um, but I was, I was very sick. Uh, my daughter found out. My daughter had been my best friend in my whole life. And, and um, Jamie found out and, and had the courage to call my family and say, Daddy's sick. And I had gone up to... About 270 pounds, I was bloated, my color was horrible, my, uh, my blood uh, counts were awful, and um, so my daughter had this courage uh, to, to call my family. Now, how much alcohol was I, was I consuming at this point? I was doing a minimum of a gallon of, of absolute vodka every day. Uh, six to eight of the big bottles of uh, yellowtail wine. Uh, I was playing golf. I'd do a beer a hole, followed by another half gallon of vodka. So, and I was still walking at that point. So my daughter was very upset and uh, called my family. We had a, a meeting scheduled out in Santa Barbara, California, and... I had lunch with the family. I said, I'm going to go back and take a nap and watch the golf tournament. And I had smuggled in two bottles of wine uh, so I could have a nice afternoon. My mom says, I want to talk to you in a little bit. And can you come on down to my room? So I went down to her room, and I saw her wandering around out, out in front of her room. And I thought that was kind of funny until I turned the corner, and there was my entire family in her room. Uh, the door closed behind me, and I went, oh, crap. I'm, I'm busted. So uh, an, an intervention took place, and I was livid. Because I had, uh, I've got an alcoholic twin sister, an alcoholic brother, and the rest of the family I always thought drank too much socially. And they're telling me that I've got to go get help. So I was, I was not very happy about all this. Uh, this was the second time in my life that somebody had called me an alcoholic, and now these are the people that love me. And uh, so I said, "Fine, I'll go. Uh, go ever. I'll go wherever you want." So they had chartered a plane to take me to the Betty Ford Center, and um, 
That was on April 14th of 2004. And I woke up the next morning in the detox unit of Betty Ford, and I thought, I'm going to start the rest of my life right here. And so I had all these things I had to do, go talk to psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors and this and that. And every one of them asked me, are you an alcoholic? And I said, yes, I am. I am an alcoholic. And so here was the first 24 hours. I hadn't had a drink, and I felt great. Well, they were also giving me Valium. I did not know that. Valium will make anybody feel better. Uh, so I spent the, the next 48 hours in detox, and then I got to go to my, my uh, dorm and start on my inpatient program. So I went to uh, my small group, which had six other men in it, and, um, and they're all crying. And I thought, oh, not a bunch of crybabies. I don't need this. I'm a man. I don't want to sit here with a bunch of men who are crying. And uh, so I sat through all that and sat through all that and uh, then I had a young man who uh, from San Francisco came his name was Daniel he says I'm I'm your mentor for the next 30 days and Daniel and I talked just about every night and he was the one who got me started on my 12 steps I'd already gone through the first step very well I'm an alcoholic been an alcoholic my whole life I know that and I didn't have too much of a problem uh, believing that something could, could bring me out of this. So I went along with step two, believing that a power greater than myself could restore me. I got, got all that. But I had been there now uh, in the desert in California in August for about 30 days. It, it was a Tuesday afternoon and I had been struggling with the third step. And if you don't know what the third step is, and, and it, yeah, I think it's pretty similar to uh, Celebrate Recovery, made a decision uh, to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. I struggled with that. Here is a God that allowed me to get here. Here is a God that allowed me to do all these horrible things in my life. Here is a God that took my wife from me. Here is a God that did all these mean things to me. And I had sat in my counselor's office. I was the guy crying. I was finally that guy crying. I could not get past this. I could not get to the point that I'm going to turn everything that I am over to a God that didn't love me. And... So I had I'd been talking also to, a, to a, uh, my spiritual counselor who uh, was uh, an ex-Benedictine monk who now worked for Betty Ford. Uh, he was a one-legged monk. He, uh, he was a recovering alcoholic, passed out on a railroad track one night and lost his leg. Uh, so that was always a reminder for him that he doesn't need to be drinking the wine that the Benedictine monks make. But he said, Mike, he says, uh, he says, we can't let you go any farther unless you're really willing to know and love God and let him have you. And so we talked about all this. We talked about all this. And, and 
he said, uh, I'm going to give you 24 hours, and then we need to come back and revisit this. So this was uh, on a Tuesday afternoon in, in hot Palm Springs, California. It was 118 degrees out that afternoon. It was about 2.15 in the afternoon. There, the, there was absolutely no wind and not one cloud in the sky, and it was like an oven. And I walked outside of my dorm, and there was a little... Uh, lake out there. It was called Lake Hope. And one of the uh, 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 alumni of Betty Ford had, had purchased all this and had, had, had the lake named Lake Hope. Well, I stood there. And I just, I kept him in and on. And I finally, I just, uh, my anguish just overcame me. And I fell to my knees and screamed out, God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? And, folks, at that very moment, the coolest breeze came across that lake. I can still see the ripples on the water, and it almost knocked me over. This, it was 118 degrees that day. In that cool breeze, it was about 50, and it lasted for seconds. And I felt in my heart the Lord say, I'm here. Let me, let me in. And I did. So for the next four months, next three months, I was at Betty Ford. I was probably one of the best patients they'd ever had. And I was, was uh, the Lord set me on fire. I mean, I was, as my wife calls it in her business, she was ignorance on fire. Well, I was ignorance on the Lord. I didn't know any scripture, but I knew that this wonderful God had a hold of me. And I was still the guy in my small group crying, but I was crying out of happiness that things in my life were finally turning around. And so it, it came time for me to go home. I didn't want to go. I mean, this, this was a great place. Um, not really a big fan of California, but uh, uh, the Betty Ford Center was a great place for me. So I went home and... Um, my wife at the time was supposed to meet me at the airport. She didn't. So I get home, and my wife is having a party, her party, with all of her friends and with the guy that she had been sleeping with while I was gone. And there was liquor and drugs and everything all over the place. What was my first thought? Get high. Run back to alcohol. Stuff these feelings of anger. and Stuff, stuff all of this. Well, I didn't do that For the first time in my life. I got in my car, and I drove to a hotel, and the next day I went back to California, and then I went back to my, my mom's house in Arizona to really start my recovery. And I started going to AA meetings every day. I started praying every day. I started reading scripture every day. I started going through the Gideon's Bible, looking for those things. That they, you know, it says if you, if you need faith or if you want look at these scriptures. Well, I did, but once again, not being a, a child of, of, uh, of the Bible, I didn't really know what I was reading. And, um, but all I knew is I was sober. I was honest. I was really honest with myself. And... Uh, so here comes some suggestions, and this is, the, this is the way I've stayed sober. My marriage, it didn't last. 
I could not remain married to somebody who did not respect where I was. And that whole marriage that I had was based on alcohol and drugs. Uh, we decided to divorce, and it was the best thing both of us ever did. Um, all these great friends that I had that allowed me to buy them dinner and buy all the drinks and everything else, I uh, said, see ya. Uh, they weren't my friends. None of those guys were my friends. So if you've got friends like that out there and you're in recovery, you don't need them. You need the Lord, and you need people here that are going to be your support. But so I went, went on through this, and, and I was happy, and I told myself, if you can stay sober for one year, you're, you can reward yourself with getting your pilot's license back, because I had one time been a pilot. So I, one year later, I owned a brand-new Cessna airplane, had my pilot's license, and was literally having the time of my life flying around, flying out to see my folks, flying, you know, flying everywhere I could. I was never home. And, um, you know, I was, you know, I was not really dating anybody. I'd go out with friends, and, and I think I was really, after the, the one marriage, I was uh, kind of scared and until I uh, uh, met uh, really the most wonderful person uh, that I'd ever met in my entire life. And um, I was very afraid to, to get in touch with her. I didn't call her. I didn't uh, email her. I didn't do anything. Um, and then uh, on March 28th of 2013, I decided, nah, maybe I don't have too many friends and I can email this woman. And uh, so I, I met uh, online, I met, uh, and over the phone, I met Melissa. And, and you're going to meet her here in a minute, too. But uh, I met her, and we fell in love online. And I had to be very honest with her, so I had to tell her. Um, I had to tell her that I was a recovering alcoholic. She, had, she was a uh, widow uh, from a previous marriage to a pastor. Um, she was a licensed pastor. And I was this scumbag alcoholic that, <laughs> that I had to tell her about my entire background. Uh, but she was, uh, the Lord had, uh, had orchestrated this, this uh, great uh, love uh, of ours. And uh, to let you know how the Lord works, I would bought a brand new biplane. Anybody know what a biplane is? The two wings looks like the World War I planes. And uh, I... Brought it back from California, had been on display out there, and, and the guy that was helping me learn how to fly it was, was uh, a member of uh, her son's in-law family, and um, I, he came up and picked me up in Fort Wayne. We flew it down to his house. Uh, Melissa and her kids had come in, and on that Sunday after a great visit, I said, you want to go for a ride in my airplane? How many guys get to do that? So she said, sure. And this is an open cockpit airplane. So we have the little uh, helmets on and the goggles. And she's sitting there. She keeps staring at the, at the uh, panel. And there's a, an identification plaque there that said N, which is an American airplane, 835MK. 
And she kept staring at it. She says, what does that mean? And I said, well, that's just the identification of the airplane. And she says, and she got this funny look on her face. Even through the goggles, I could see this funny look on her face. She says, well, do you know that that happens to be my initials and my birth date? Now, I know the Lord's got a great sense of humor, but I'll tell you what, he, he, he could have knocked us out of the sky on that one. Two months later, I took her up in another one of my airplanes and proposed to her over Sedona, Arizona. And I think she was so startled that she never said, she didn't say yes, and I was about ready to put the plane into a dive uh, to, to get her to answer. But the, ex the experience that I went through uh, is, is not different than any, anybody else that has an addiction. Uh, I drank a lot. I almost killed myself. The numbers of accidents that I've had, the numbers of near misses that I've had, uh, the Lord had spared me and put angels around me my entire life in order to do what I'm doing now, and that is, ex is sharing my experience, strength, and hope with all of you and with people all over the country. And he prepared me for this. He prepared me for Melissa and her family. And I know that now. And all the anguish that I felt over, over my uh, first wife's death, uh, there was a reason there. And she got to go be with the Lord, and the Lord provided me with something, with, an, with another thing that he needed me to do with Melissa. And uh, so the experience that I had, I, there's not a whole lot of regret that I have. Um, you know, I can regret some of the stupid things I did. Every, everybody's got that. Uh, I can regret some of the things that I missed out on with my kids when I was either passed out or gone somewhere. Uh, I can regret some of the lies that I told um, as, as I was uh, in my active addiction. Um, but all that's gone. And I can take a look back and all it takes is for me to be here and be with people that I love, who I love and know that are going through their own active addictions to know that I'm just one drink away from killing myself. So the, the humbling experience that I've been through is the same humbling experience that all of you with active addictions can go through yourselves. And I want to pro provide you with hope because the Lord does have you. He's got you right in the palm of his hands if you'll let him have you. And we all make mistakes. We all have made mistakes. We have relapses. We get DWIs. We, we, we do things like that. But if you can let those around you who love you help you, and I'm going to ask my family to come up with me, come up here with me. And um, this is my wife, Melissa. We just celebrated our fifth anniversary. And her daughter, my daughter, Tiffany, and my son-in-law, Nate. Um, this is my support. 
right here. I wake up every day and I get to put my arms around these people and they get to put their arms around me. And there's not anything that they probably don't know about my past. And, and Pastor Rhonda said that I know Stevie Nicks and some of those other things. And if we have time, maybe I can tell some of those funny stories. But this is my support, and you have the same support. Now, whether they're in your own family or whether you have family in their own active addictions, you have a family here. You literally have a family here. And all of us, whether you know it or not, are part of your family. And I pray every night and every day for those in active addiction. And I'm still an alcoholic. I'll be an alcoholic for the rest of my life. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm in recovery, but I, I haven't beat anything. I've, I've got this, this little active or this little addiction sitting here on my shoulders just testing me. And, um, but I want to take a minute before I take some questions. I, I'm going to uh, ask my family to, to bow their heads, and I want to pray for all of you. And then, um, then I'll take some questions. Dear Father in heaven, as we gather here tonight, I thank you for the love in this room. I thank you for the opportunity to be here to share my story. I thank you for the love that I've been able to have in my life. And I pray to you, dear Father, to help everybody in this room have the same spirit of love that I've had. Help them to get through this, these demon addictions. Help everybody in this room to invite you into their lives on an intimate basis. Forgive them, help them, heal them, and love them, just as all of us love you. I pray this in the name of, our, of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ.